Chapter Three, Parts Three and Four of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter Three, Part Three. Internal Development of Sparta and Her Institutions. In the seventh century, one could not have foretold what Sparta was destined to be. Her nobles lived luxuriously, like the nobles of other lands. The individual was free, as in other cities, to order his life as he willed. She showed some promise of other than military interests. Lyric poetry was transported from its home in Lesbos to find for a while a second home on the banks of the Eurotos. Songs to be sung at banquets, at weddings, at harvest festivals, and at festivals of the gods, by single singers or choirs of men or maidens, were older than memory could reach. But with the development of music, and the improvement of musical instruments, the composition of these songs became an art, and lyric poetry was created. The introduction of a lyre of seven strings, instead of the old tetrachord, was attributed to Terpander of Lesbos, who was at all events an historical person, and both a poet and a musician. He visited Sparta, and is said to have instituted the musical contest at the Carnea, the great festival of Lacedaemon. His music was certainly welcomed there, and Sparta soon had a poet who, though not her own, was at least her adopted son. Alcman from Lydian Sardis made Sparta his home, and we have some fragments of songs which he composed for choirs of Lassonian maidens. Sparta had her epic poet too in Senathian, but this promise of a school of music and poetry was not to be fulfilled. When Sparta emerges into the full light of history, we find her under an iron discipline, which invades every part of a man's life, and controls all his actions from his cradle to his deathbed. Everything is subordinated to the art of war, and the sole aim of the state is to create invincible warriors. The martial element was doubtless, from the very beginning, stronger in Sparta than in other states and, as a city ruling over a large, discontented population of subjects and serfs, she must always be prepared to fight. But we shall probably never know how, and under what influences, the single Spartan discipline, which we have now to examine, was introduced. Nor can we, in describing the Spartan society, distinguish always between older and later institutions. The whole Spartan people formed a military caste. The life of a Spartan citizen was devoted to the service of the state. In order to carry out this ideal, it was necessary that every citizen should be freed from the care of providing for himself and his family. The nobles owned family domains of their own, but the Spartan community also came into possession of common land, which was divided into a number of lots. Each Spartan obtained a lot, 
which passed from father to son, but could not be either sold or divided. Thus a citizen could never be reduced to poverty. The original inhabitants, whom the Lacedaemonians dispossessed, and reduced to the state of serfs, cultivated the land for their lords. Every year the owner of a lot was entitled to receive seventy midimini of corn for himself, twelve for his wife, and a stated portion of wine and fruit. All that the land produced beyond this, the helot was allowed to retain for his own use. Thus the Spartan need take no thought for his support. He could give all his time to the affairs of public life. Though the helots were not driven by taskmasters, and had the right of acquiring private property, their condition seems to have been hard. At all events they were always bitterly dissatisfied and ready to rebel, whenever an occasion presented itself. The system of helotry was a source of danger from the earliest times, but especially after the conquest of Messenia, and the state of constant military preparation in which the Spartans lived may have been partly due to the consciousness of this peril perpetually at their doors. The cryptia, or secret police, was instituted, it is uncertain at what date, to deal with this danger. Young Spartans were sent into the country and empowered to kill every helot whom they had reason to regard with suspicion. Closely connected with this system was the remarkable custom that the euphors, in whose hands lay the general control over the helots, should, every year on entering office, proclaim war against them. By this device the youths could slay dangerous helots without any scruple or fear of the guilt of manslaughter. But, notwithstanding these precautions, serious revolts broke out again and again. A Spartan had no power to grant freedom to the helot who worked on his lot, nor yet sell him to another. Only the state could emancipate. As the helots were called upon to serve as light-armed troops in times of war, they had then an opportunity of exhibiting bravery and loyalty in the service of the city and those who conspicuously distinguished themselves might be rewarded by the city with the meed of freedom. Thus arose a class of freedmen called Neodemodes, or New Demismen. There was also another class of persons, neither serfs nor citizens, called Methones, who probably sprang from illegitimate unions of citizens with helot women. Thus relieved from the necessity of gaining a livelihood, the Spartans devoted themselves to the good of the state, and the aim of the state was the cultivation of the art of war. Sparta was a large military school. Education, marriage, the details of daily life, were all strictly regulated with a view to the maintenance of a perfectly efficient army. Every citizen was to be a soldier, and the discipline began from birth. When a child was born, it was submitted to the inspection of the heads of the tribe, and if they judged it to be unhealthy or weak, it was exposed to die on the wild slopes of Mount Tigetus. At the age of seven years, the boy was consigned to the care of a state officer, and the course of his education was entirely determined by the purpose of inuring him to bear hardships, 
training him to endure an exacting discipline, and instilling into his heart a sentiment of devotion to the state. The boys, up to the age of twenty, were marshalled in a huge school formed on the model of an army. The captains and prefects who instructed and controlled them were young men who had passed their twentieth year, but had not yet reached the thirtieth, which admitted them to the rights of citizenship. Warm friendships often sprang up between the young men and the boys whom they were training, and this was the one place in Spartan life where there was room for romance. At the age of twenty the Spartan entered upon military service, and was permitted to marry, but he could not yet enjoy home life. He had to live in barracks with his companions, and could only pay stolen and fugitive visits to his wife. In his thirtieth year, having completed his training, he became a man, and obtained the full rights of citizenship. The homoio, or peers, as the Spartan citizens were called, dined together in tents in the Hysinthian street. These public messes were, in old days, called Andreae, or men's meals, and in later times Fidatia. Each member of a common tent made a fixed monthly contribution, derived from the produce of his lot, consisting of barley, cheese, wine, and figs, and the members of the same mess-tent shared the same tent in the field in time of war. These public messes are a survival, adapted to military purposes, of the old custom of public banquets, at which all the burghers gathered together at a table spread for the gods of the city. Of the organization of the Spartan hoplites in early times, we have no definite knowledge. Three hundred horsemen, chosen from the Spartan youths, formed the king's bodyguard. But though, as their name shows, they were originally mounted, in later times they fought on foot. The light infantry was supplied by the Parisi and Helots. Spartan discipline extended itself to the women, too, with the purpose of producing mothers who should be both physically strong and saturated with the Spartan spirit. The girls, in common with the boys, went through a gymnastic training, and it was not considered immodest for them to practice their exercises almost nude. They enjoyed a freedom which was in marked contrast with the seclusion of women in other Greek states. They had a high repute for chastity, but if the government directed them to breed children for the state, they had no scruples in obeying the command, though it should involve a violation of the sanctity of the marriage tie. They were, proverbially, ready to sacrifice their maternal instincts to the welfare of their country. Such was the spirit of the place. Thus Sparta was a camp in which the highest object of every man's life was to be ready, at any moment, to fight with the utmost efficiency for his city. The aim of every law, the end of the whole social order, was to fashion good soldiers. Private luxury was strictly forbidden. Spartan simplicity became proverbial. The individual man, entirely lost in the state, had no life of his own. He had no problems of human existence to solve for himself. Sparta was not a place for thinkers or theorists. 
the whole duty of man and the highest ideal of life were contained for a Spartan in the laws of his city. Warfare being the object of all the Spartan laws and institutions, one might expect to find the city in a perpetual state of war. One might look to see her sons always ready to strive with their neighbours without any ulterior object, war being for them an end in itself. But it was not so. They did not wage war more lightly than other men. We cannot rank them with barbarians who care only for fighting and hunting. We may attribute the original motive of their institutions, in some measure at least, to the situation of a small dominant class in the midst of ill-contented subjects and hostile serfs. They must always be prepared to meet a rebellion of Parisii, or a revolt of helots, and a surprise would have been fatal. Forming a permanent camp in a country which was far from friendly, they were compelled to be always on their guard. But there was something more in the vitality and conservation of the Spartan constitution than precautions against a danger of a possible insurrection. It appealed to the Greek sense of beauty. There was a certain completeness and simplicity about the constitution itself, a completeness and simplicity about the manner of life enforced by the laws, a completeness and simplicity, too, about the type of character developed by them, which Greeks of other cities never failed to contemplate with genuine, if distant, admiration. Shut away in hollow, many-clefted Lacedaemon, out of the world and not sharing in the progress of other Greek cities, Sparta seemed to remain at a standstill. And a stranger from Athens or Miletus, in the fifth century visiting the straggling villages, which formed her unwalled, unpretentious city, must have had a feeling of being transported into an age long past, when men were braver, better and simpler, unspoiled by wealth, undisturbed by ideas. To a philosopher like Plato, speculating in political science, the Spartan state seemed the nearest approach to the ideal. The ordinary Greek looked upon it as a structure of severe and simple beauty, a Dorian city stately as a Dorian temple, far nobler than his own abode, but not so comfortable to dwell in. If this was the effect produced upon strangers, we can imagine what a perpetual joy to a Spartan peer was the contemplation of the Spartan constitution how we felt a sense of superiority in being a citizen of that city, and a pride in living up to its ideal and fulfilling the obligations of his nobility. In his mouth, not beautiful meant, contrary to the Spartan laws, which were believed to be inspired by Apollo. This deep admiration for their constitution, as an ideally beautiful creation, the conviction that it was incapable of improvement, being in truth wonderfully effective in realising its aims, is bound up with the conservative spirit of the Spartans, shown so conspicuously in their use of their old iron coins, down to the time of Alexander the Great. It was inevitable that, as time went on, there should be many fallings away, and that some of the harder laws should, 
by tacit agreement, be ignored. The other Greeks were always happy to point to the weak spots in the Spartan armour. From an early period it seems to have been a permitted thing for a citizen to acquire land in addition to his original lot. As such lands were not, like the original lot, inalienable, but could be sold or divided, inequalities in wealth necessarily arose, and the communism which we observed in the life of the citizens was only superficial. But it was specially provided by law that no Spartan should possess wealth in the form of gold or silver. This law was at first eluded by the device of depositing money in foreign temples, and ultimately became a dead letter. Spartans even gained throughout Greece an evil reputation for avarice. By the fourth century they had greatly degenerated, and those who wrote studies of the Lacedaemonian constitution contrasted Sparta as it should be and used to be with Sparta as it was. There is no doubt that the Spartan system of discipline grew up by degrees, yet the argument from design might be plausibly used to prove that it was the original creator of a single lawgiver. We may observe how well articulated, and how closely interdependent were its various parts. The whole discipline of the society necessitated the existence of helots, and, on the other hand, the existence of helots necessitated such a discipline. The euphorite was the keystone of the structure, and in the dual kingship one might see a cunning intention to secure the powers of the euphors by perpetual jealousy between the kings. In the whole fabric one might trace an artistic unity, which might be thought to argue the work of a single mind. And, until lately, this was generally believed to be the case. Some still maintain the belief. A certain Lycurgus was said to have framed the Spartan institutions and enacted the Spartan laws about the beginning of the ninth century. But the grounds for believing that a Spartan lawgiver named Lycurgus ever existed are of the slenderest kind. The earliest statements as to the origin of the constitution date from the fifth century, and their discrepancy shows that there were mere guesses and that the true origins were buried completely in the obscurity of the past. Pindar attributed the Lacedaemonian institutions to Agemus, the mythical ancestor of the Dorian tribes. The historian Hellenicus regarded them as the creation of the two first kings of Sparta, Procles and Eurysthenes. The more critical Thucydides, less ready to record conjectures, contents himself with saying that the Lacedaemonian constitution had existed for rather more than four hundred years at the end of the Peloponnesian War. Herodotus states that the Spartans declared Lycurgus to have been the guardian of one of their early kings, and to have introduced from Crete their laws and institutions. But the divergent accounts of this historian's contemporaries who ignore Lycurgus altogether, proved that it was simply one of many guesses, and not a generally accepted tradition. It may be added that if the old Spartan poet Tertius had mentioned Lycurgus as a lawgiver, 
his words would certainly have been quoted by later writers, and we may fairly conclude that he knew nothing of such a tradition. Lycurgus, or to give him his name in its true form, Lycovorgus, was not a man, he was only a god. He was an Arcadian deity, or hero, perhaps some form of the Arcadian Zeus Lysaeus, god of the Wolf Mountain, and his name meant wolf-repeller. He was worshipped at Lacedaemon, where he had a shrine, and we may conjecture that his cult was adopted by the Spartans, from the older inhabitants whom they displaced. He may also have been connected with Olympia, for his name was inscribed on in a very ancient quoit, the so-called quote of Iphitus, which was preserved there, and perhaps dated from the seventh century. The belief that this deity was a Spartan lawgiver, inspired by the Delphic oracle, gradually gained ground, and in the fourth century generally prevailed. Aristotle believed it, and made use of the old quote, to fix the date of the Lycurgian legislation to the first half of the eighth century. But while everybody regarded Lycurgus as unquestionably an historical personage, Candid investigation confessed that nothing certain was known concerning him, and the views about his chronology were many and various. Part 4. The Cretan Constitutions Ancient Greek students of constitutional history were struck by some obvious and remarkable resemblances between the Spartan and the Cretan states and it was believed by many that the Spartan constitution was derived from Crete, though there are notable differences as well as notable likenesses. It will be convenient to glance here at the political condition of this island, to which we shall seldom have to recur, since, owing to its geographical situation and the lack of political union, it was isolated and withdrew from the main course of Greek history. In a passage in the Odyssey, the inhabitants of Crete are divided into five classes, Achaeans, Etocretans, Sidonians, Dorians, and Pelasgians. Of these, the Etocretans may represent the original people who dwelled in the island before the Greeks came, like the Etocarpathians of Carpathaeus. They survived chiefly in the eastern part of the island, and they continue to speak their own tongue in historical times, writing it, however, not in their ancient linear script, but in Greek characters. A specimen of it, but we have no key to the meaning, has been preserved in some inscriptions, found at Prasius, their most important city. The people of Sidonia were perhaps also a remnant of the old population, the Achaeans and Pelasgians point to Thessaly, and there are some links which seem to connect Cretan towns with Perbia. We may consider it probable that early settlers from Thessaly found their way to Crete. But the most important settlers belonged to the Dorian branch of the Greek race, easily recognized by the three tribes, Hylias, Pamphili, and Daemans which always accompanied its migrations. These three tribes can be traced in many Cretan cities, 
and we saw that this island was one of the first places to receive the Dorian wanderers. But at a later time there seems to have been a further infusion of the Dorian element. New settlers came from Argolis and Laconia, and mingled with the older inhabitants, refounding many cities. Thus Goiton, in the south of the island, in the valley of the river Lathius, was resettled, and her neighbour Festos, distinguished by a mentor in Homer, was invaded by newcomers from Arglis. Well-built Lytus, in its central side, also of Homeric fame, and Polyrienion, rich in sheep, in the northwestern corner, a haunt of the divine huntress Dictiana, were both colonized from Laconia. Canossus, the great city of Minos, Canossus the Broad, was repopulated by Dorians, and though it never attained to its former splendor, it remained the leading city in Crete. The island, then, colonized first by a folk closely akin to those who conquered Lacedaemon and Argus, colonized again by those very conquerors, may be said to be doubly Dorian. And there is thus a double reason for resemblances between Laconian and Cretan institutions. In the Cretan cities themselves there were, of course, many local divergences. But the general resemblances are so close, wherever we can trace the facts, that for our purpose we may safely follow the example of the ancients in assuming a general type of Cretan policy. The population of a Cretan state consisted of two classes, warriors and serfs. In a few cases, where one city had subjugated another, the people of the subject city held somewhat the same position as the Laconian Persei, and formed a third class, but these cases were exceptional. In general, one of the main differences between a Cretan state and Sparta was that the Cretan state had no Persei. There were two kinds of serfs, Noetai and Aphamiotai. The Noetais belonged to the state, while the Aphamiotai, also called Clarotes, or Lotmen, were attached to the lots of the citizens, and belonged to the owners of the lots. These bondsmen cultivated the land themselves, and could possess private property, like the Spartan helots, but though we do not know exactly what their obligations were, they seem to have been in some ways in a better condition than the bondsmen of Laconia. If the pastas, or lord of a Cretan serf, died childless, the serf had an interest in his property. He could contract a legal marriage, and his family was recognized by law. The two privileges from which he was always jealously excluded were the carrying of arms, and the practice of athletic exercises in the gymnasia. Unlike the helots, the Cretan serfs found their condition tolerable, and we never hear that they revolted. The geographical conditions of the Cretans enabled them to excuse their slaves from military service. Of the monarchical period in Crete we know nothing. In the 6th century we find that monarchy had been abolished by the aristocracies, and that the executive governments are in the hands of boards of ten annual magistrates, entitled Cosmoi. The Cosmoi were chosen from certain important clans, Startai, 
and the military, as well as the other functions of the king, had passed into their hands. They were assisted by the advice of the Council of Elders, which was elected from those who had filled the office of Cosmos. The resolves of the Cosmoi and Council were laid before the Agori, or general assemblies of citizens, who merely voted and had no right to propose or discuss. There is a superficial resemblance between this constitution, which prevailed in most Cretan cities, and that of Sparta. The Cretan Agora answers to the Spartan Apella, the Cretan to the Spartan Gerusi, and the Cosmi to the Euphors. The most obvious difference is that in Crete there was no royalty, but there is another important difference. The democratic feature of the Spartan constitution is absent in Crete. While the Euphors were chosen from all the citizens, in a Cretan state only certain noble families were eligible to the office of Cosmos. And, as the Gerusi was chosen from the Cosmoi, it is clear that the whole power of the state resided in a privileged class, consisting of those families or clans. Thus the Cretan state was a close aristocracy. The true likeness between Sparta and Crete lies in the circumstance that the laws and institutions of both countries aimed at creating a class of warriors. Boys were taught to read and write, and to recite certain songs ordained by law. But the chief part of their training was bodily, with a view to making them good soldiers. At the age of seventeen they were admitted into herds. Agelai, answering to the Spartan Buai, which were organized by sons of noble houses, and supported at the expense of the state. The members of these associations went through a training in the public gymnasia, or dromoi, and hence were called dromias. Great days were held in which sham fights took place between these herds, to the sound of lyres and flutes. The dromias was of age in the eyes of the law, and he was bound to marry, but his wife continued to live in the house of her father or kinsman until he passed out of the state of Dromaeus and became a man. The men dined at public messes called Andrei, corresponding to the Spartan Fidatia, but the boys were also permitted to join them. These meals were not defrayed altogether, as at Sparta, by the contributions of the members, but were partly at least paid for by the state and the state also made provision for the sustenance of the women. The public income, which defrayed these and other such burdens, and maintained the worship of the gods, must have been derived from public land cultivated by the Noetai, and distinct from the land which was apportioned in lots among the citizens. We see then that in the discipline and education of the citizens, in the common meals of the men, in general political objects, there is a close and significant likeness between Sparta and Crete. But otherwise there are great differences. 1. In Crete there were, as a rule, no Parisi. 2. The Cretan serfs lived under more favourable conditions than the helots, and were not a constant source of danger. 3. Kingship did not survive in Crete. And, consequently, 4. The functions which in Sparta were divided between kings and euphors 
wherein Crete united in the hands of the Cosmoi. Five, the Cretan state was an aristocracy, or Sparta, so far as the city itself was concerned, was the limited democracy, a difference which clearly reveals itself in six, the modes of electing Cosmoi and Euphors. Seven, there is a more advanced form of communism in Crete, in so far as state stores contribute largely to the maintenance of the citizens. If one city had become dominant in Crete, and reduced the others to subjugation, the resemblance between Laconia and Crete would have been much greater. A class of Cretan Persei would have forthwith been formed. End of chapter 3, parts 3 and 4